I've not played a match yeah. since year 10. Have you not? <laughs> Please put that in the uh, in the intro. Like, you know, when they're uh, <laughs> making the last thing. I am talking about the big man in the fridge and then he was going, I haven't played a match since year 10. <laughs> <laughs> I was sat in the cabinet room and I was like hosting me on meeting. The big man, the fridge is open. He's flown like a gazelle. I've not played a match yeah. since year 10. He goes low. Oh, you're right. You've got a man beside you. He's got it. England have won the World Cup by the barest of margins. That boy Stuart Broad can still bowl. One and all, welcome to The Wrong and I'm Bertie Moores and I'm joined by Ollie Godden. Hello Bertie, how you doing? And Wrong and Irregular Max Parry. Hello, yes, yes, hello. I don't know why, I don't know why I said yeah. Is a wrong and irregular double negative as well? No, it means, I don't know, it means he's not regular on the wrong, because what is this, your first appearance since Feb, Max? This is my first, yeah, this is my first post-COVID. This, yeah, this is my first appearance since Feb, yeah. I mean. Relegated, he was, in, he was with the, the big boys up in uh, up at Wisden and has decided to uh, <laughs> bring himself down a peg or two to, to join us at the wrong. I'm humbled that you've, uh, that you've decided to join us, Max. I actually... Oh, well, I was hurt very much like Stuart Broad the other day when I um I hopped onto Spotify just to have a glance through our back catalogue. I couldn't help but notice it says um, join Ollie, Bertie and Satch. Where am I? But you haven't been I'm over six months. So I had to take oh, yeah, yeah, drop no, you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fair play. Fair play. So either uh, way, very uh, much uh, like Stuart Broad, you've made a swift return. And hopefully, uh, the uh, the same level of quality as we maybe come to expect over the over the past previous two episodes. But either way, much yeah, like yeah. Stuart Broad, you're back, and Stuart's back. He's he's not exactly stopping anytime soon, is he? Five hundred Test wickets now. England have wrapped up the series two one against the West Indies today, and you you can't put a good broad down, as the saying goes. Yeah, he 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 strikes me as like um. I feel like there are two two sorts of kids when play, that play cricket or any sport where like some of them have like if you if you look at them the wrong way they'll burst into tears and other ones like they they've got this sort of mental fortitude of like I'll show you and I feel like that's really really apparent at like schoolboy level but at international level you presume they're all like international players you know must have a level of mental fortitude to succeed at the top level but it's like Stuart Broad's got this like extra reserve of mental fortitude that he can sort of just call upon at will. And he sort of, you know, the bit, the bit between his teeth, you know, is a phrase that I don't think sort of really covers it. He's, he's just a very, very, when he gets angry, we need to get him angry more, basically. We need to, we need to wind him up a hell of a lot more. I don't know. I feel like he's probably quite precious about what he looks like and his golf game. Maybe we could jive him in that area. You know, I just feel like, you know, he's a very angry young man. And he, I reckon, I reckon we drop him once a series for the first test, every single series for the next five years now, and then he'll just come steaming back in, and he has to then get the wickets that he would have got in that test all in the following two or three. Yeah, yeah. I've got no no doubt it was a uh, it was a deliberate and genius ploy from uh, from Smith Taylor, and it was uh, backed by Joe Root, who was sitting at home having birth, having a bit of birth. <laughs> Joe, Joe Root was having birth. Yeah, yeah it's very no, impressive that he can do that whilst churning out forties for England. Yeah, I mean, 
first jokes aside, Broad has he came back with a with a point to prove. Um, it's probably the first time, I suppose, and he always said it, didn't he, in that diary room chair and in, in, at the GS Bowl that he uh, he was starting to question his future for his country and, and had to ask those questions about um, the plans that his country had for him going forwards. And I suppose they he won't he won't and uh, England won't be questioning the role that he'll have to play at least for the next year or, or eighteen months because he's proved what he can do, particularly in in English condition. I will say. Um, even at the time when he wasn't picked, it was obviously the wrong call. Like I don't think you need. I don't. It's easy to say with the benefit of hindsight, but even looking forwards, we just got. It seemed that they got a bit giddy with the prospect of choosing Archer and Wood, which isn't necessarily the correct combination in English conditions. And Broad has proved how successfully he can be exploiting those. So to say, we didn't really need hindsight to, to prove that um, that it might have been the wrong call. Max, you wrote a really good piece for us at the start of the series talking about how it sort of might sort of blunt Archer and Wood's best assets of pace in a way. But equally, rather than it necessarily blunting the other bowler's assets, surely Broad off his past 18 months was always going to be in the best possible bowling lineup. And if you're going to have the first test of the series, you should always go in with your first choice bowling lineup. It really didn't make sense to me. Yeah, I mean, thank you for the plug, by the way. Obviously, plugging our own website, but still, I appreciate it. Longandcricket.com. At Max Perry 4 on Twitter. Yeah, I completely agree. And the thing is, as well, like, you say only, like, with the benefit of hindsight, like, well, you, you actually said correctly, I think, that it, even without, you don't need hindsight to realise that Broad was not only in England's best two bowlers, but also in the best nick of any of England's bowlers. Like, he, he was by far and away the best bowler in South Africa. New Zealand, you know, the wickets were flat and turgid, and no one really got anything out of the services but then in Austra- then against Australia he was last summer he was absolutely unplayable um, just ask David Warner so yeah it, it, to leave out broad I, I can understand with the with the number of games there were to play there are to play this summer and the you know the the, the, the limited gap between the test matches against the West Indies why you would want to rotate your bowlers but it, it didn't feel like the broader mission was a rotation policy. It's like, as I say in the article, they were, the selectors just got horny for pace, didn't they? <laughs> Let's face it. They just, well, they did. They, you know, they, they saw Archer and Wood together and they thought, and, and as Bertie's alluded to in the past, probably were mistakenly thinking about Australia when they weren't giving the West Indies the respect they deserved by taking this test series as, serious, as seriously as they should have done. Um yeah, Broad's admission was an absolute joke. It was a farce, really. But you wonder, from a from Broad's perspective, you know, he's never he's never been you know so much flavour of the month though, has he? You know, we there's his being dropped sort of has created this conversation that perhaps wouldn't have been there. I, I don't know. That's why I find it particularly weird. The whole suddenly there's become a discussion as to whether Stuart Broad is a good enough player to play for England, and yet if you were going to be having that discussion, you'd be having it two years ago when he wasn't bowling as well, rather than now yeah. when he started to bowl much better. But he's come back for the final two tests, won player of the series, despite not playing all three games, ahead of a player who averaged 90 with the bat and basically Stokes obviously coming up with some crucial moments with the ball as well. 10 wickets in a test, it, it's sort of... I, it sort of frustrates me in a way that as a result, it, Broad just continued to show what he's showing. And yet the discussion is, should they be taken to Australia? And you know my views on people always banging on about the Ashes. 
if you if a, if a player's playing well in exactly a year's time, then they go and play in the Ashes. But that shouldn't be the discussion right now. You just play what's in front of you, and Broad is in England's best attack. Yeah, no, I completely agree with you. Um, and that's been my point for a, for a while: is you just play your best team that you have for that Test match. And it's where I've got a bit irritated with it, all like the the Denley chat because for the past year, there's not really been anyone who who was going to do a better job than him at the time. And yes, he's not been set the world alight, but he's been doing an okay job. And for a given Test match, he's probably been the right person. And yeah, as I say, I don't really know. Well, I suppose the prevailing argument when Wood and Archer were both picked was that. You know, we're looking ahead to Australia, but um, Southampton in in mid July is pretty different from um, Perth in at, at Christmas. So I don't really buy the argument that we need to, you know, they need to be on the same field together an awful lot for it to, for it to be successful in in Australia and the best team for for a given moment and broads in that in England. So England three match series, and I think fair to say. Given that it's a series which has happened during uh, uh, during a global pandemic, it's gone down extremely smoothly. And Chris Silverwood's tenure, ignoring the weird series against New Zealand, which just felt like a real sort of post-Ashes holiday, it's five wins out of seven. And the first test they had against West Indies, it's the first one that they've had since the start of the summer. No one's played any cricket, but the following two comprehensively outplayed them. It's been... Uh, it's been a good three tests overall for England, hasn't it? Yeah, I mean, we say smooth. Obviously, we had the whole uh, we had the whole Archer hiccup, but um, but apart from that, all went all went swimmingly. And I think ECB would have been as pleased that, that there were no admin or very few administrative headaches as, as they will be that England actually won the series. Um, I'm sure we'll come on to talking about West Indies and and arguably how little they got out out of it and how much ECB did get out of it um, in terms of. Both money and and reputation, but uh, but yeah, it went it went smoothly, and and that's the investment of cricket moving forwards. I think both for bringing the and international cricket in general. Max. Yeah, I think the thing Chris Silverwood would be most pleased about from a from a just an analysing England's performance against West Indies and in the last series against South Africa is we were in the last in the last Test match in the one just finished we posted what three fifty first innings in the one before that we posted four fifty. That's something we haven't been doing consistently for a while, um, 450 especially. But I think you look back to South Africa as well, Sibley sort of put his hand up and said, oh, actually, maybe I'm good enough for this level and has obviously consolidated that with a, with 100 at Old Trafford. Burns doesn't look any less accomplished a player. Um, he doesn't look any less of the player than we thought he was. The batting lineup seems to be slowly progressing. I think there was a, a potential danger with the, with the lack of cricket that's been played and the strength of West Indies uh, battery of quicks that actually we could have potentially a, a couple of players could have found themselves under real pressure. Obviously Butler has, um, but he's always been under pressure. But in terms of that solid top six, none of them have really been, um, none, none of their stocks are any lower than at the start of the series. If anything, they're all slightly higher. Um, siblings especially and I think that's something that we can really that we should really be pleased about as England as England fans Nolly me and you said before the start of the series that from a bowling perspective it wouldn't be uh, it wouldn't it wouldn't be a particularly interesting series that England would learn a lot from their bowling attack because we know that none of the West Indian batsmen average even over 35 and although Broad's taken the headlines the only reason the bowlers have really got any headlines is because of 
how good Stuart Broad has been, averaging 10 across the whole series and dropping him. But we said that we'd learn a lot more about the England batsmen in this series, given that the Windies had their best pace attack probably in about 20 years since the days of like Walsh and Ambrose. And they have done pretty well overall. There's, there's, there's always that, the first test in particular, there's a bit of shakiness, but it seems like even without Ben Stokes, even though Ben Stokes came into the second test and carried England through that innings, the batsmen at certain times have picked up at just the right points to drag England through an innings, be it uh, Sibley in the second test when we were about four down, staying in forever, leaving everything at the right moment, Pope getting 90 in the third test, even Butler chipping in with a 40 around then. The players seem to be coming up with the goods sort of at about the right time. And I think that sort of shows that this batting lineup starting to find its feet a little and that if a player does get out, okay, it's only against the West Indies, but they've got a very good bowling attack. There's less of a sort of, I have less of a panicky concern than I did maybe 12 months ago. Yeah, I think Matt puts it very well when he says that, you know, the players' stocks are almost all uh, higher than, than where they would have been at, at the start of the series. Um, everyone always had their time in, in the spotlight, as it were. And Butler, I mean, I've been defending Butler for, for ages now, but, you know, he's, he's a wicked batsman. He's still averaging 30, 30 odd in test cricket, which um, historically for, for a uh, test wicketkeeper is actually pretty decent. We just know what we can do with the white, what he can do with the white ball. So we always expect more from him. But um, yeah, I think that, that little knock in the series will help him. And obviously Pope, as good as he has looked, and even when he gets up cheaply, everyone, that's, that's all anyone seems to say. But him actually getting a score consolidates that, as you say, as well as the, the top four um, looking solid again. I mean, anyone could do with a score it's probably root right now but I think everyone knows that he the talent that he possesses I don't think he's being dropped yeah I mean I, I think everyone assumes and expects that at some point he's just going to find his form again he's going to look as, as good as he did a year ago maybe two years ago um, and as, as good perhaps as he does still look in um, in white ball tournaments where the pressure is probably a little bit a little bit off him and, and on other players um, yeah as I say Max puts it well when he says the batters in general that they're stopped are up so, t- so touching on this, at the, from the end of the series, I've written down a few takeaways that Chris Silverwood might have on some sort of uh, big whiteboard when it comes to like his re- big review of the series. I'm just going to go through them and see what you make of what I've come up with. And uh, there's the odd bit that you lot have contributed that I might have a, have a little look at. So first one, the top order, the openers are now looking solid. Burns and Sibley look, they don't look like the finished article and it seems like one of them half the time will get a low score. Uh, But the two of them together look like the sort of players that will stay in. Burns got two fifties in, in this, uh, in this latest test in the third test, very nearly made his way to a hundred and, only lost his wicket when England are really trying to push up the run rate. Uh, and Sibley made a, a century in the uh, in the second test and made 50s in the first and third. They are beginning to churn out the runs, which is something that we've really been lacking, even with any of Alistair Cook's partners for the fa- past five years or so. So, yeah, top order, solid. Yeah, couldn't agree, couldn't agree, couldn't agree anymore. I think they're both the only the only areas you say they're not the finished articles. I think spin is a question mark for them. I'll get to that. I'll get to that. Oh, you get to that. Okay. All right. Okay. Yeah, want, we're talking we're talking time. openers. But yeah, yeah, yeah. Ollie, you keep complaining yeah, I, that Sibley's not busy enough, which I think is just yeah, think, a little bit too much criticism. They're not busy enough. It's it's one of my favorite club cricket phrases is 
you can it's a put down without anyone actually understanding what it means is this what no, you I say to know, people yeah. when they're accumulating runs and you're sort of getting out for 10s and 15s but because they're not busy at the crease it gives you a one-up on them <laughs> yeah i'm trying to work it mid-wicket from uh from ninth stump and i'm trying to you know turn my hands on it again leading edge but i'm trying to be busy so uh that's the important thing isn't it um no, I think I would like to see <laughs> simply be a bit busier and try and see how we what his score, scoring options are um, on fourth, fifth, sixth stump. But as I say, I think it, that is perhaps being a little bit greedy. We have been crying out for an opener, a patient opener who can uh, build a platform for ages. Uh, he comes along and, and I've started criticizing him. So um, yeah, maybe being a bit greedy. It's, it's good to have two openers who, who seem to want to um, stick around for a little while. It's good to have openers that you're criticising for odd assets rather than the number of runs they're getting. Yeah, I'm sure that's what so. Number two, Stokes is England's best player by far and has strong captain potential. So I know they lost that first test, but it's very much with Ben Stokes that okay, they lost the first test when Root wasn't there. But even then, he was like, right, give me the ball, give me the bat. I'm going to sort it if none of you lot can. And if he can do that when he's captain, then that surely opens a lot of positive doors for England going forwards, potentially. I don't know about him as skipper, per se. I, I agree with, the, I agree with the, uh, the notion that he's England's best player. He's England's best cricketer. Um, he's arguably the most valuable cricketer in the world in terms of um, his ability. If he was to enter into any side in the world, I think he would balance them like no other player could. Uh, he reverses the ball incredibly well. He can bowl quick. He can bat time and he can bat explosively and he's an unbelievable fielder. So as an all-round cricketer, I think he's probably the world's most complete player. He's, and he's, he's especially busy when he, when he wants to be. Um, the, the captaincy thing, I think you've got, again, I wrote, I wrote an article about this at wrongandcricket.com if you would like to check it out. I think uh, if you were to give him the captaincy, it would curb his talismanic potential. You look at Flintoff in the past, I appreciate they're different people, but both of them as well. We ask a lot from all-rounders. We ask them to be top-order batsmen and genuine bowling threats. To ask them to also captain the side amongst players that probably aren't as naturally talented as them, I think is a big ask and it's probably an ask too many. I don't know if yeah, see, I, 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 I think I slightly view it from not just, uh, okay, Stokes is incredibly valuable now, but remember just how valuable Root was before he took the captaincy. And I think... I think it's fair to say that Root as captain is there's some who've never been quite convinced of his ability as captain, but equally it's it's objectively looks as though it's damaged his ability batting. I know his average has dropped by seven or eight points. And I slightly get the feeling that if Stokes is the sort of player that yes, you run the risk like Flintoff or both of them, that they end up just having too much to do. But Stokes does seem like the sort of personality that could be able to take that on. I may be completely wrong on this, but if he took that on, equally, that would shoulder off a lot of responsibility from Root, who we know the level of player that Root can be, and he's not shown that over the past four years. I think pre-holder as well, there was a, a general conception that all-rounders couldn't be captain because there was so much to handle. And I think, almost ironically, he's proved that, that you can... Um, you know, be the go-to with the ball, the go-to with the bat, and and captain the side, and um, not lose the the ability to do so. I, I I suppose I agree with you both of you, Max, in in the uh, he's such a talismanic figure, I suppose, and sort of quite a raw energy, um, and in curbing that perhaps by giving him the captaincy, 
but then he is such a good thinker about the game in the way that um, all-rounders of the past haven't been. So I think there's, there's arguments both ways. Um, and it wouldn't surprise me, I don't think, to, if England do go that way. But I, I don't think it'll be for, for a while yet. It's such a weird, difficult conversation to have, though, because like all the things I've been putting forward and, and Max has been putting forward when it comes to captaincy, they're sort of meaningless until you actually put them to the test because it's not as though you can see a player batting or bowling at a different level of cricket and see their distinct abilities. It's a lot more sort of myopic and complex when it comes to a captain. It is almost like a, a gut instinct. So to be honest, I don't think I can really tell, nor Max, to be honest. But either way, I mean, he's bloody brilliant, isn't he? Sorry, just quickly, I think it's pretty almost a relevant hypothetical discussion because Root's not going to stop being captain for a while. <laughs> And you, uh, you say that you say that unless he get unless he gets dropped for form. But I think because he's proved how good he is, I don't think that will happen anytime soon. Because but I, I think that I think the the, like, the most likely thing to happen. He, I don't believe Root will ever get dropped for form. I think the step before that will be taking the captaincy away from him because that will be the scapegoat for his lack of form. You know, that like that, though, isn't it? That, oh, it would that, be, and almost unheard of. Do you think yeah, nowadays no, no, no. on on the captaincy front? Like we look at a player like Joss Butler, who's who's in the side. I'm not saying Joss Butler is your captain. No, wait. For <laughs> uh, but given nowadays, like Joss Butler is in that side partially because he's sort of the vice captain. There's sort of a leadership group within the England squad, which at the moment probably comprises, uh, generally speaking, like Joe Root, Jimmy Anderson, Stuart Broad, Joss Butler, Ben Stokes, sort of the most senior players. Is the is the captaincy really something which, in a way? would have to permanently sit in the hands of someone, given that like they have these leadership structures anyway, where the senior players, and they probably see each other as sort of equals in that respect. Why does the captaincy have to be seen as such a symbolic thing to be removed from, given the structure they have anyway? I, I, think, I think the role of a captain in cricket is, is, is unique, like no other sporting thing. I mean, ultimately, the... I understand. I think it's it's far more than the symbolic thing because because I mean, look, you couldn't have. I don't think you could have uh, equitable power shared between you know bowlers and batsmen within the side. Bowlers especially because they ultimately need to be told when they need to stop bowling and when they shouldn't be playing in test matches as well. Um, I mean, m- perhaps this will be an evolutionary route that will go down and we'll realise that having lead- actually having leadership groups, unlike Australia's phony leadership group, will be. Uh, will be uh, genuinely beneficial, but I struggle to see it at the moment. Yeah, I don't think cricket really lent itself to that. I don't know if Ollie agrees. Uh, yeah, I agree with that. Fair enough. And final takeaway for Chris Silverwood, I've written seam strength, spin questions. That should be the title of the pod, Percy. That's, uh, that's very good. That's, that's it's not quite there. catchy enough. It doesn't rhyme or sound like an innuendo to something. Isn't it sibilance? <laughs> something like that. Anyway, yeah, I mean, um, team's quite good. Don Bess is solid. Not going to set the world alight. And uh, there's not a wealth of options other than him um, that are going to offer a great alternative. Thoughts? Yeah, it's hard to disagree. It's hard to disagree. Um, I think you've got to bear in mind that Bess is bowled on wickets that haven't been uh, used as much as they could have done throughout the series. What We lost a day to rain in this test match. We lose a day to rain the last one. I can't actually remember now. In fairness to Bess, he hasn't been able to uh, bowl in conditions that would be massively favourable to his sort of bowling. I do think he's come on a long way. I remember when he got selected for South Africa, I really turned my nose up and thought, what a bloody 
the equivalent of the Craig Overton selection at Old Trafford in the Ashes. Like, what the bloody hell is this selection? But actually, he has come on a seriously long way. Um, he looks, he does, he, he spins the ball, which I know is sort of a shame-worn cliche, like, uh, you know, spinners have to spin the ball, but he does spin the ball. He, I, I think, you know, I only think he'll improve in an England shirt. And, I mean, if, if we were going to the subcontinent, whenever that happens, you would think he'd surely be in your uh, your spin armory for that sort of talk. You'd partner Leach as well, quite well, I assume, when you when you go with two spinners um, in the subcontinent, with one being a left arm and a right arm. And I think that that'd probably be a preferred combination to Parkinson, who I suppose is the other alternative, and he's been dragged around the world in the last yeah. uh, in the last year or so with the England side, but hasn't quite quite got a crack. Um, I think he's had an England gap year, hasn't he? A, yeah, a duo of Bess and Leach actually uh, seems quite West Country and uh, and also quite solid. It's it's funny, isn't it? Because England England spin options have been relatively scarce for a good while, probably since since Swan left the side. And okay, on his day, I I do reckon that Moeen was a better spinner than Bess is. Agree? Yeah. 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 General, yeah, general agreement. Uh, and sort of Moeen losing his sort of form and not looking like he's really going to properly break back into the test side on a on a permanent basis. They've sort of got the situation where they've got several options, none of which are sort of bad, but none of which are sort of really good, if you see what I mean. Yeah. I mean, the, the person I'm really interested in is Parkinson from a from a spin perspective. You know, he oh, he's you know he's a wrist spinner. He bowls leg spin. Christ alive! Like he he could be genuinely match winning. He could also be Scott Borthwick. As someone who went to school with Matt Parkinson, I would uh, like to see him play on that basis. But generally, yeah. I think it would almost just be interesting to put him in just yeah, just, just to see what happens almost. Yeah, no, I suppose there's also an argument that we don't... It is really nice to have a, a good match-winning spinner, but in England, it's not always a necessity. Uh, As we've seen this series. It, but best in bowl one over in this uh, in this test. Did uh, you not? That's a good no. stat. Right that's here. a learn stat. That's lovely, Benedict. That's <laughs> lovely. Little lovely... Oh, yeah, that's uh, good. Yeah. yeah, so it clearly doesn't... England don't need a spinner to 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 win tests in in England, as we've seen. And and given how strong their pace attack looks, pretty good at the moment, it's probably only something that they'll really have to be sort of worrying about for when they do go to India. So it's still it's it, it's another couple of series off. It's this winter, but they've got another series to sort of work it out. You just sort of hope that in a way, a couple of options get a little bit of time. If there's not going to be much cricket played, or or at the very least, those that aren't playing will get to play in this Bob Willis tournament the counties are playing. Yeah, between now and that subcontinent uh, series in India, then those spinners or whoever the spinners are going to get a fair old chance to basically hold up an end and maybe every now and then um, come into play on on the fifth day. But especially given that the surfaces that are going to be produced uh, for for the Pakistan series, not as if they're going to be being played on. Serious amount, you'd expect uh, a slightly green top and then the seamers to do the job. I think. Yeah, it's also not in. If you were, I, I don't know. You would presume that the ground staff aren't um, can't be swayed at all by by the sort of the wills of um, of Chris Silverwood in England. But it, I, I, yeah, I don't know what the situation is with there. But in, England would not want wickets that sort of necessarily crumble late. They'll want wickets with plenty of grass on the top of them and try and 
nibble Pakistan out early. So, you know, it's the eternal problem in England, right? Our conditions don't really lend themselves to to result wickets that will turn because if you want a result wicket in England, the likelihood is that you're going to leave loads of grass in it at the start and it's not going to deteriorate by the time you get to day five. Um, obviously, with some exceptions, the oval probably being one and taunt. And obviously, I mean, it's no surprise that England's two, two of England's spinners both play at Somerset were absolutely turned square. So, um, but yeah, you know, I, I, I would be surprised if we're going into any series in the subcontinent with a battery of spinners that have come off, you know, a, a, a really, really successful test series in recent times because they won't bowl on wickets that, that give them that. Yeah. England for the series, what grade are we going? I'd say a B. B plus, I think. A bit of extra generosity. Yeah, they fall back. You know, first test was was pretty pretty uh, not you know pretty not great. I want of a much better phrase, but um, I thought individual performances uh, were excellent in the next two test matches. Openers look good. Seam bowlers look great. You know, Butler's looking better. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's very fair. Particularly that first test, it was such an unusual. It was the first test back. Very few players had played in. The players just hadn't played in months and months and months. And obviously, it's a it's a weird situation. And West Indies, to be fair to them, in that first test, did sort of sort of turn up in a, in a lot of aspects. And particularly like those spells that Holder and Gabriel were bowling at certain times were very impressive. So I think it's been a good series for them. Ollie, what would you give it? I am going with B plus as well, but probably given that grade on the basis that the classmates work. To sort of continue your analogy, being West Indies had a promising introduction and then sort of faded away uh, as the exam pressures got to them a little bit, uh, and they probably ended up with a B minus or C. So yes, a B plus, but for England, but made to look better by uh, by other poor work. And there speaks a man who's got a PGCE. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I mark my work through Mark's games out the window. Yasir Shah, his last ball of the series. We had our friends at the Caribbean Cricket Podcast on for the uh, for the series preview, and they've I mean they've had a whale of a, whale of a time over the past few weeks. Their their content production has been a lot more regular than ours and been been a lot more impressive. Uh, but they've been saying a lot of interesting things regarding obviously information gaps that we have about the West Indies and what we expect from them. And I think English fans know that the West Indies aren't aren't the force that they once were, but I, in particular, the uh, the Caribbean Cricket Podcast lads, they've been really underlining the fact that this West Indian side and West Indies cricket setup really is so far away from, from England. I think the, the broadcasting revenue for the West Indies Cricket Board per year is 12 million. For the ECB, it's 220 million. And obviously, a lot of that money filters through to the county system, but that in turn makes the English team stronger. Financially, these are sides that are so far away from each other that even getting one win in a three-match test series is an enormous success. And and England have gained a lot more from this series than the West Indies have, and they should be very grateful for this side coming over. Yeah, West Indies have done uh, England, I suppose, a few favours by coming over. The great cricketers made a very, very good point the other day that the big three, if you like, England, Australia and India, want West Indies to be successful for the betterment of the game because you know, it's more exciting if, if there are more nations who are, who are competitive. Yet they're the three big nations that have all the money and don't, and it's not really shared out particularly equitably. So um, for West Indies to be successful and in sport generally, as we all know nowadays, money talks, 
West Indies to, to be successful, they're, they're going to have to have some more investment, you'd think, so that the structures are in place to produce test cricketers of genuine quality because they, well, I don't have the stats to hand, but I, I guess they probably used 14, maybe 13 players throughout this test series compared to England who probably used 16 or, or 17. So yeah, the, the structures probably aren't in place to, to produce a, a test side that are going to perform um, consistently well over a period of time, you think. I think the immediate responses that people have put forward, there's sort of two sort of easy immediate responses put forward. Firstly, England give them a five test series the next time they go down there, which boosts Caribbean cricket. But the one which means seems to make more sort of overall structural sense and should probably make more sense for sides like Sri Lanka, Bangladesh, Zimbabwe, and South Africa is that all away touring sides get at least 20% of the broadcast money from any series. That would do something to narrow the gap. Yeah, I think it would. I think it's it's deep. It's and I think the the Caribbean cricket podcast pointed out, especially on social media, that it's it's so deep rooted. I think it's not just a match of giving them a five test series. If you go to if you watch um, away series in, in the West Indies, the, the grounds are empty. Uh, there's a it's it's much deeper rooted problem than uh, you know needing more tests per se. It's it, the the country needs a, a swell of interest again, or something something to to get into and to for them to pin their identity on, perhaps. Um, yeah, it just start. It feels like it, it needs to start with money and how we we get that money. But there's a lot to out. be there's a lot for England to be grateful for, in particular, given that they've come across during a global pandemic, in effect, to boost the ECB's sort of coffers. If if they hadn't done it, then the ECB would be in a lot more trouble with it than they are now, and they may be in trouble down the line. But there's fewer obligations that they've got to give back to Sky in terms of, well, in effect, giving Sky back some cash as well. Yeah, I mean, I, it's, it's very interesting. I'll actually just pick up on what Ollie said about the um, the grounds birds. I won't, I won't ignore your point slightly, but I did want to pick up on that. The, the grounds of the West Indies, when, when um, I think Sky did actually really, really good coverage during this series, especially covering the Black Lives Matter stuff, but also um, when they covered previous England tours of the West Indies, when you looked at like Sabina Park, or the recreation ground that are these like corrugated exactly. roof grounds. yeah just fantastic stadiums but these corrugated roof grounds where people are you know sitting on the roof and hanging off wherever and everyone's desperate to get a get a ticket and the atmosphere is absolutely electric the the sort of and i know it's a cliche but the commercialization of sport and the the, the desire to just generate revenue at every possible opportunity i think has absolutely robbed west indies of its cricketing culture you look at the, for the 2007 World Cup, they built all of these what are now white elephant stadiums out of town, just ripping the heart out of West Indian cricket culture. You know, I mean, again, I, it's the for me, it's the most disheartening thing that Ollie alluded to when you watch England or whoever tour the West Indies, and the most prevalent group of people there are 50 plus bald white men. I'm bloody bored to tears of it, honestly. That, that, that draws me more than anything else. It's a broader question, a lot of, across cricket, though, because South Africa is exactly the same. A tour to Sri Lanka is exactly the same. Even though I imagine a tour to Bangladesh, even though there wouldn't be as many Balmy Army people there, would be exactly the same. And when it comes to sort of evening out cricket, cricket has a lot more of an obligation to do it than other sports because ultimately there's not many teams that play it. So in football... Even if you have a big unequal league, there's so many teams playing, it sort of doesn't make as much difference when it comes to the games that the teams play. But if England and Australia and India just end up concentrating so much, then 
they are going to have to play the West Indies at some point because there's only like 10 or 11 teams they can play. And if everyone's a walk home, it's just not in anyone's interest. Yeah, I guess the other, the other, and the other side of that, the, the additional uh, sort of stacking in one team's favour element of Test cricket at the moment is teams' utter dominance at home. I mean, you know, we, we talk about the gap between England and the West Indies, and there is quite an obvious one. But England lost the last time they went to the West Indies. You know, we, teams at home are particularly strong. And I think that presents its own challenge in terms of generating competitive interest in cricket. I mean, you know, when England go to India, they're going to get absolutely pumped. When Pakistan went to Australia in the winter, they got absolutely pumped. Pakistan are probably going to get absolutely pumped this this, this summer. Like, it isn't, isn't in the interest of Test cricket for, and I know we're getting off the point now slightly with, with in terms of revenue, but it isn't in the interest of Test cricket for teams to walk over sides at home. I know we've just beaten South Africa, but they are completely dog. So, um, <laughs> and that's and this is why, in a way, a two-one loss to England is a big result. Is a big result for the West Indies. Getting yeah. a win in England that that test they won at Headingley, they lost the series. And if I'm right, yeah, yeah, they lost. Yeah, they lost the last series. They lost the series, but winning a test is a big achievement. And aside from all the discussion of the sort of reasons for all this, it's equally not been the worst series for the West Indies, has it? Yeah, it would have done. It would have done world cricket a lot of good for West Indies to win this. To be honest. <laughs> I think, yeah, I was uh, thinking that when we were sort of at the start of the second test, when England were wobbling before a Stokes and Sibley put on the lot. Yeah, I mean the the, the Englishman, I suppose, they wanted uh, wanted England to pull it out of the bag, but um, from the, you know what what Mac mentioned about the, the culture of West Indian cricket and them being sort of a fallen giant, it would have been a, a nice wake-up call from neutral point of view for the West Indies to come and do a job over here and I'm sure there were people thinking that that might have been the case after the first test it it seemed and felt like a long road back for England but yeah and overall West Indies West Indies getting a getting a win under their belts England putting a good uh, good cup performances it's ended up being a enjoyable series and a lot more enjoyable than you sort of would have anticipated an empty grounded uh, coronavirus pandemic series would be and, uh, and credit to everyone all around who's been involved and put it on it's it's actually been really enjoyable to watch uh, my football team isn't playing at the moment but when I watch the Premier League it's been nowhere near as interesting to me watching the games that are going on in an empty Premier League stadium than it has watching an empty test some for some reason the the sense of it being a test match has carried over and the intensity stayed there. And it's been, it's been a really good series to watch. Can I throw something out there on this that literally has just entered my brain? Do you reckon like the reason cricket isn't so hardly hit by there being no fans is because the cricket ground is so massive. You don't really see, yeah, you don't really see much of the, of the empty stands. Whereas like football, you're always, you're constantly, you're never not seeing empty stands. You're never not, seeing that reminder that that full sound that you're hearing is indeed a full sound. Like, you know, the 22 yards, you, you, that's what you're watching. So I don't know. It's wor- it, I, think it's, I think it's worked well. I think, I think the, the coverage from Sky has been very good. I think t- TMS is almost like normal, except when they hit it for a four or get a wicket, there's no cheer afterwards. That's the sort of only jarring bit, I suppose. But, but yeah, when it's, uh, when it's sort of normal day-to-day play, it's hardly noticeable. And, uh, and they've put on a good, really good show. And thankfully, uh, the cricket really isn't going to stop. We've got three ODIs against Ireland. Then we've got a three-test series against Pakistan. Then another three T20s against Pakistan. And then the IPL rolls around. So really, 
the cricket season doesn't seem to have, despite it being on hold, hasn't been postponed. Uh, hasn't been cancelled. It's only been postponed. So uh, it's uh, it's yeah, cricket's cricket's definitely back, and I don't feel like we've entirely been uh, without a series this summer, so to say. No, yeah, and I'm uh, I'm very you know delighted that it's it's back, even if there are no people watching. You sound delighted. When there are no celebrations in the wickets, um, yeah, no, it's it's great to have it back. Um, I suppose our boredom has been uh, curbed somewhat. And yeah, cricket back. <laughs> it would be incredibly us to do a preview of the West Indies and then only one other podcast, and then just cover the Island series to death. Can we do ten podcasts about Ireland? I'd, I'd really lunch, like to. lunch of every yeah 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 yeah. yeah. So. Max, I want you wheeling out the uh, the you know the big screen truck that Sky have and doing some, oh, the Sky some live, live stream analysis. Yeah, the Sky Cart, whatever it's called. Yeah 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 yeah. I'll get I'll, what I'll do is at home I'll get a wheelbarrow and get a projector and sort of create my own homemade DIY Sky Cart and do my best Ian Ward. But uh, well, you just stuck yeah no looking forward to the Island series. Yeah well yeah that's true. I mean other than other than the will. Um, there is nothing stopping me. But uh, no, I'm I'm pretty I'm pretty looking forward to the Island series. I don't know. I would sort of quite like. I mean, we're going to absolutely mug them. But um, yeah, yeah. I, you know, I'm looking would forward to the Island. I like even as an England fan would be would be good banter for for absolutely Island. unbelievable banter if they were to win it. I don't know who they've got. Who have they got? Balburnie, Paul Sterling uh, with his pot belly. Someone. They've got an an ex uh, an ex Durhamsman in um, oh McCollum yeah James McCollum at the top of the order yeah um, yeah yeah shout out yeah I remember the first I think social with him so uh, good mate I remember the first time I met him he was doing the like Durham trials and I was I was absolutely in awe of this sort of like completely cocksure confident chap the man looked sheepish as f- at international level. That's what I'm going to say. So really, yeah, he's the loser. We'll, we'll welcome him on the show. Friend of the show, James McCollum. Yeah, yeah, great bloke. The man <laughs> great who guy, great our guy. co-host has described as uh, as sheepish as. <laughs> well, you, you know what, James? If you if you're offended by it, get on the f- pod and prove you're not sheepish as. F- <laughs> well, anyway, we're, we're trying to accumulate friends of the show, but Max Parry's just here to remove him. <laughs> Anyway, that seems like a suitable point to, to leave. Say goodbye, Ollie. All the best. You love and all the best. Say goodbye, Max. Goodbye. Goodbye. And we'll see you next time. And actually, it's it's quick cricket day at school tomorrow, so it's not actually going to be that bad. I'm going to get so many wickets. <laughs> they are only four, but they will count.